Chapter 3 of With the Anzacs in Cairo by Guy Thornton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 The City of Cairo Continued To see and seeing to understand a city like Cairo and its inhabitants is a feat not to be accomplished in a month, the stay of an average tourist, or in twelve months. For after more than a year's residence, I have come to the conclusion that my knowledge of it is, for the most part, merely superficial. There is a surprising elusiveness about the East and the Eastern. Apparently, all is open and above board. The people eat, drink, play, sleep, and pray in the open air. But the longer one lives in the Orient, the more is one conscious that beneath the surface there is something incomprehensible and mysterious. The Eastern alone can understand the Eastern. The bluff Britisher is constitutionally incapable of fathoming the depths of the native of the East, and is conscious that the latter, despite his seeming servility, holds him in contempt. The splendid electric tram service of Cairo makes it an easy matter rapidly and easily to visit each place of interest. From the citadel, or better still, from the Makatamu Hills, which command the whole city and its suburbs, an excellent bird's-eye view can be obtained. Viewed in the light of the setting sun, the spectacle is a magnificent one. The graceful minarets, clothed in the soft golden light which beautifies even the dirty native quarters of the city. The desert, the oasis, the distant pyramids, the Nile as it wends its way through its palm-crowned banks, past stately palaces, all these combine to make a picture which it would be hard to equal for beauty and variety. Cairo is, indeed, a city of striking contrasts. The European quarter, with its magnificent buildings, is but a few yards from the squalid hovels of the poor. The Pasha's palace adjoins the paraffin-tin-covered mud hut of the Fellaheen. Exquisite Saracenic work may still be seen amidst the filth of a poverty-stricken native quarter. The Rolls-Royce motor car of the rich Egyptian passes the old donkey diligence of the indignant Berber. The rich fertile land is separated but a yard from the barren desert sand. The grand and awe-inspiring monuments of antiquity overshadow the mean hovels of the decadent descendants of their builders. The European rubs shoulders with the representatives of almost every race under the sun. Close to the up-to-date business establishments of the European quarter are the old bazaars of the native, where business is carried on today almost as if it was 3,000 years ago. It is not true that the East knows no change. It does change, but so slowly as to be almost imperceptible. I have engaged in Christian work among over a score of native races, but it was not until I had to do with the Egyptians that I found it all but impossible to have for them the respect and love which has been evoked by the Chinese, Japanese, Maoris, the South Sea Islanders, etc., among whom my lot had been previously cast. The good old book foretold 2,400 years ago that the Egyptians should be the basest of all kingdoms, and that statement is true today. There are, of course, splendid exceptions to the general rule, but the average lower-class native is untrustworthy, a liar, and a plausible one at that. He loves bargaining, as the following conversation, which took place in my tent, will show. A peddler was trying to sell me some antiquers, antiques. Among them was a scarab. I asked him, how much? Two hundred piastres. No good, too much. I sell you one hundred and eighty piastres. 
No, perhaps it was made in Luxor, world famous, or perhaps it would be more correct to say infamous, as being the place where spurious antiques are manufactured. No, this real antiquer, me swear it by Muhammad. Me find him in Kingsgrave. Him real, him goot, him cheap. Too much. You take it, 150 piastres. No, 100. No good, imshi. 50? Imshi. 20? Too much. Five? No, I don't want it. Two piaster, equivalent to five pence. You take him. Very good. Very nice. Real antiquer. No, won't give you a million, one farthing. Then Chaplain Major Grant, who was with me, said to him, How much do you charge for scarabs? It depends on whom he sell him to. What do you mean? If Melkin man come along and he want scarab, me sell him for two hundred piasters. If Inglese, English, tourist, me charge him one hundred. If Australian, seventy-five piasters. If New Zealander, me take fifty. If Egyptian, half piaster. Melkin, he got plenty money. Inglese, not so much. Australian, throw money about. Egyptian, he no scarab made in Luxor. He no give more than half piaster. This scarab no good. Why do you tell us that? Me go away now, not come back to Cairo. Me no care you not take anything. With the native, deception is no sin when dealing with a Christian. They are not in the least ashamed when their lies are found out. They have one price for the soldier, another for the officer. I found I saved nearly 50% on my purchases by getting my orderly to do my shopping instead of doing it personally. Without doubt, the most interesting and fascinating place in Cairo is the far-famed Muski. Each lane in this district is devoted to the sale of one particular article. For example, the goldsmiths, mostly cops, who achieve the most intricate workmanship with the very same kind of tools used by their ancestors 4,000 or 5,000 years ago, have their shops in an exceedingly narrow lane, in places not more than five feet broad. The brass workers and the carpet sellers have each their street. Their shops are often not more than eight feet deep and six feet broad. Despite the noisome smells, the endless jostling of the crowd, and the insistent and incessant importunity of the tradespeople, there is much to interest and instruct the European. Some of the larger shops in the Muski have magnificent showrooms. In one, I was shown a Turkish carpet of moderate size, for which the seller asked 2,000 guineas, a bedstead inlaid with silver and mother-of-pearl, 800 pounds. In one of these warehouses, I was informed that the insurance covered stock valued at half a million pounds. Some very amusing advertisements were displayed with a view to procuring the coveted custom of the colonial troops. I give a few of them. A Greek restaurant had the following. All sorts of spirits, so led here. I was informed by those who were better qualified than I was to express an opinion that it was chiefly bad sorts. Another restaurant had for its sign these cryptic words, Squar Dinkum Feed, which was intended to convey to the passerby the information that a good square meal could be procured inside. A liquor bar held out the following inducement to colonials, Australians done here! And it was rumored that they were done brown. A similar advertisement read, The best liquor is soled only in this establishment! The advent of our troops caused numberless restaurants to spring into existence, and each such place being, of course, a saloon as well as an eating house, 
and names such as the Melbourne Buffet, the Sydney Saloon, Ballaret Bar, Auckland Restaurant, etc., etc., were bestowed on them. But the most amusing advertisement was that of two Egyptians who opened a laundry near the Zaytun camp, and whose sign read, Two Egyptians want washing. Very cheap, very nice. The first part of this advertisement was undeniably true. In fact, I have not yet met a lower-class Egyptian who didn't need washing very badly. They are unbelievably dirty. The Mohammedan mother never washes her child or suffers it to be washed until it is over six months old. To bathe the poor infant would, according to their idea, be but to invite evil spirits, jinns, to enter into it. Unfortunately, however, they apparently forget to wash it when the six months have passed. Being, I suppose, under the impression that cleanliness is a luxury that can safely be dispensed with? The poor children of heathenism, brought up amidst dirt and squalor, hearing the foulest of foul talk, rarely educated, save by the Christian missionary, what chance have they? Is it to be marveled at that nearly 75% of them die before they reach the age of knowing good from evil? Is it not far better that they should? I may be unorthodox, but it is my profound conviction that there will be found in the eternal presence of him who said, Suffer little children to come unto me, more heathen children than many Christians seem to imagine. To say as one good but narrow man, that is, if a person can be good in the truest sense of the word, and at the same time be narrow, did when speaking of them, they were not baptized, and of course there was no hope for them, is simply inconceivable. If God didn't have mercy on those poor kids, said a blunt, rough Christian soldier to me when repeating the first remark, I wouldn't have much to do with him. I don't see a word in the Bible which says that children who are not old enough to believe should be baptized. And God is not the sort to condemn unjustly any child for something over which it had no control and for which no one could blame it. I couldn't stick it, the statement, and told him straight that to believe what he did was to insult not only God's love, but God's brains. I am absolutely convinced that the majority of these children of heathenism will be saved. Although poor, although ill-housed, and ill-clad, even the lowest class seem to have sufficient to eat. The mildness of the climate is such that the lack of what we would consider sufficient shelter and clothing does not seem seriously to affect the health of the people. It is, so old residents of Egypt have informed me, impossible to compare the present condition of the lower classes in Egypt with what it was prior to the British occupation. The days of the enforced corvée, when thousands of breadwinners were dragged from their homes and fields and compelled to work without pay for months and years in order to gratify the insensate ambition or sordid avarice of some pasha, have happily gone forever. Never in her history has Egypt been so fairly governed. Never has she as a nation been so prosperous. That is not to say that we as a nation are loved. We are respected and feared welcomed by the Copt, who, for the first time for 600 years, dwells in safety, but disliked by the average Mohammedan. The latter, uneducated and consequently bigoted, would, I verily believe, prefer to be cruelly oppressed by one of his own religion than to be justly ruled by the unbeliever. But, much as British rule, despite the fact that it has been hampered by the existence of the capitulations, has accomplished, it has, until now, 
been unable to ameliorate the condition of the Mohammedan women. Cribbed, cabined, and confined by her religion, the creature rather than the companion of man, condemned to suffer degradation whilst man is exalted, there is but one hope for her, one friend, one savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. It is significant that one rarely sees a native woman, other than a copt, over the age of 50. I remarked on this to a man of wide and varied experience in Mohammedan countries, and asked him if he had noticed this, and, if it were the case, how he accounted for it. He replied that it was unhappily only too true, and that from his knowledge of the real condition of their lives, it was the hardships they endured, the neglect, the absence of all that made life worth living, that caused so many to die prematurely. Of course, there are, I am glad to say, many splendid exemptions among the Mohammedans, in which the women are well cared for and loved, despite the fact that they are past middle age. But what I have said, unfortunately, is true in the majority of cases. Polygamy, the fatal facility of divorce that obtains among the Mohammedans, the perpetual friction in the harem between the favored wife and the other more unfortunate wives, the degradation of womanhood, should create in our minds a deep sympathy for these poor unfortunates. No man can compare the lot of women in a Christian land with the condition of women in Mohammedan countries. The difference is as great as that existent between the respective religions. I have had pointed out to me the house of an Egyptian who, so I was informed by a credible authority, although under forty years of age, had had over thirty wives whom he had divorced upon the slenderest of pretexts. Another Egyptian, a wealthy landowner in southern Egypt, had been the husband of over thirty-five wives and was the proud father of more than a hundred children. Educated Mohammedans, however, have in conversation with me deplored these conditions most earnestly and wholeheartedly. I have mentioned these facts about the low status of womanhood in general, and wifehood in particular, since it accounts to no inconsiderable extent for the awful immorality that unhappily exists in Cairo. There is but one life, and that a life of shame, remaining for these poor creatures who by the laws of facile divorce, inculcated by Mohammed, are thrust out into a censorous, man-ruled world. End of chapter 3